Let's pray before we consider this passage of Philippians chapter 4. Oh, Lord, we have before us an immensely encouraging text. I pray that you would help us to see what you would have for us in this word as we look at it together. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as I said earlier, the holidays are approaching. And for many, it is, as the song says, the most wonderful time of the year. As we think about gatherings and food and gifts and just the spirit of things that are all just around the corner. And it's a great time to be alive. As the air crisps up and as the temperatures drop, it's a reminder of these wonderful traditions that we have held for many years. But for others, holidays are a time of great stress for a lot of the same reasons. There are lots of parties, and there are lots of gifts, and there are lots of dishes that need to be put together and all need to be assembled. And for some reason, it always falls upon me to put these things together year after year. No, anyway. There are things where the stresses can build up, and the holidays are not what they should be, at least those of us that when we think. And then, of course, as we think about the holidays of this year, I think the thing that we are all searching for in some way or shape or form is something normal for once. We wish it could be the holiday season of 2019, or maybe we need to go back to 2013. 1995, or whatever it was that felt normal to us, when things just didn't seem chaotic, when it seemed like we could just take a break from the news for a few days and not miss years' worth of controversy. And maybe some of us for this holiday season, as we think about the beginning of 2022, were filled with a little bit of anxiety. We all thought that the end of, 21, of the end of 2020 would be kind of the end of a lot of our problems as a nation, maybe even personally. And then the calendar flipped, and it turns out that the world is still a fallen, sinful place. And I know for us here personally at Knollwood, 2021 has been a very difficult year for us. And the holidays, I think, for some of us are going to hit very, very differently because of what we've gone through. And that's where this passage comes in. Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 9. That's why I've chosen this passage here today. This is an absolute goldmine of Christian comfort for us as we examine this unpredictable season of life, this unpredictable year it seems that we are a part of now. But at first, the command at the very beginning, and it is, a command. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. It can sound rather tone deaf in certain seasons of our lives. You catch us in the right mood, we might come back to Paul and say, hey, buddy, weep with those who weep. Don't tell us to be rejoicing. We're having a hard time here. And while there is a place for weeping, there is always an anchor of joy. And that's what Paul is explaining to us here. And this is what we hope for through the weeping, through the tears, as we find in this passage. So I'm very excited to bring this to you today. 
we're going to take a look at our usual two points. And those two points are, the first one is that God commands rejoicing in a world of suffering. God commands rejoicing in a world of suffering. And then number two, God provides the peace to rejoice through promise and practice. God provides the peace to rejoice, gives us the ability to carry out this command through promise and practice. So let's take a look again, this first point that God commands rejoicing in a world of suffering. So to begin with, we should probably define what rejoicing actually is. What is it that Paul is telling us to do? Is he telling us to be just sickeningly happy at all times? Prozac running through our veins. Is that what Paul is calling us to do? No. Happiness is determined by circumstances. What Paul is calling us to is joy. Now, what is joy? Is that just another word for happiness? No, it isn't. One commentator defines joy very well. He puts it this way. Joy arises from the quiet hope and confidence that the Lord of life will turn affliction into deliverance. Joy in the Lord is not a feeling, but an attitude. Again, joy arises from the quiet hope and confidence that the Lord of life will turn affliction into deliverance. In other words, joy is not dependent on circumstances. It is instead dependent on the God behind those circumstances. The anchor of our joy is God, who is, as we just sung a few moments ago, unchanging. This love is here. Our joy is Jesus. But still, how many of us would say that we walk around every day with a high degree of confidence and quiet hope? This seems just as hard as being gormlessly happy all the time. How do we have this quiet hope? Well, there's really only two options here. Either Paul just simply doesn't understand what it's like to be joyful in the modern world. After all, he didn't have email or three kids to get to soccer practice on time. Either he's mistaken or we're mistaken. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing down God's inspired words. So he ain't wrong. We're the ones that are approaching this incorrectly. Now, my point here is not to kick people who don't understand how this joy is to have access to. I have a hard time remembering this too. My point as we go through this is to invite you into something that is really, really helpful to help you get to this point of rejoicing in the Lord. So let's see how it is that Paul is explaining this. Paul is not writing from a position of naivete. Paul is not unaware of suffering. In fact, if we were to limit ourselves just to what's going on in this letter, Paul is going through eight separate things at this moment. Paul in Philippians, just to give you a quick overview Paul is writing this letter from jail. He is in prison for preaching the gospel. That's in chapter 1, verse 13. 
in chapter 1, verse 17, there are people who are preaching in such a way as to grieve Paul. But they're preaching the gospel, so Paul doesn't mind. But it's still, they're trying to get at him. That's chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 28, the church that he's writing to is facing external persecution and pressure. And trust me, as a pastor, that's really hard to behold. That's 128. In chapter 2, verse 27, he had a dear friend who almost died, was very, very sick, and went through that. False teachers are sniffing around in chapter 3, verse 2. Again, very anxiety-producing as a pastor. He's working through his own sin, and chapter 3, verse 12 tells us that he is not already perfect, but is still working on his salvation. There is conflict within the Philippian church that he's dealing with. Chapter 4, verse 2, there are these two ladies that have apparently had such a row that Paul brings it up in Philippians to tell them to work it out. And then finally, there are other churches that Paul has been working with and has founded, but they have not supported his ministry. Chapter 4, verse 15. Eight separate things that Paul is going through. And this isn't even the worst place Paul has been. He is writing, and that guy who's going through all of that in the last, you know, few weeks is telling us rejoice. Telling us to have confidence and joy in the Lord. Now, he's telling us to do that always. Does he really mean always? Yes, he does. I looked in the Greek. Always means always. And again, he will say, to emphasize it, he will say to rejoice. But to rejoice in the Lord. This is the beginning of how this is possible. How is it, Paul, that we can rejoice in a world that is suffering all the time? Well, Paul begins. He looks and he says, let your reasonableness or gentleness, depending on your translation, both, both English words capture the same basic concept, to let your reasonableness and gentleness be known to the world, the outside world. Those that are rejoicing, that have a quiet confidence in their Lord to turn affliction into good, can be gentle and reasonable. When we are harsh and unreasonable, because we're afraid, because we don't have confidence in the Lord. So we have to resort to unreasonableness and harshness. So he says to rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is the best way to glorify God. How do you know when you're scrolling through as you're working on your Christmas list and you're scrolling down Amazon, how do you know you have a good product? Based on all the positive reviews of that product. Are people satisfied with it? We find as... John Piper says about our God that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we have a people that place their full joy and confidence in the Lord, that brings confidence to the rest of the world that God is who he says he is. This is what he calls us to do. So, how do we live out this first command, this first point that we have been looking at, that God commands rejoicing in a world of suffering, let's now turn to point number two, because we'll spend more time here, that God provides the peace to rejoice through promise and practice. 
Promises made to us and us practicing the precepts that he hands out. Let's take a look at the end of verse 5. It says, the Lord is at hand. Now, what does it mean that he is at hand? There's two options here. It could either mean that the return of Jesus, as he will come and set all things right again, resurrecting the dead, restoring the earth, that that time is coming soon. could be today. It could mean that. Or it could mean that Jesus' presence, his working in our lives, is near to us. So which one is it? The answer is yes. Both of them are true. Christ is near us and is involved in our life. He hasn't just set a watch and then just let it spin. He is intimately involved in each and every one of our lives. Right now, he is at hand in this very service. And he's also coming soon. That's a promise that we have, a twofold promise that informs the rejoicing and informs what follows. Jesus is at hand. That's our promise. So what's the practice? How do we live out that promise? How do we live as if that promise is true? How is it that we can demonstrate that what this is, that Jesus being near makes a difference? Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Again, it's exactly what it means. Do not be anxious in anything. Don't worry. Now, I don't know about you, but when we have just that phrase itself, don't worry, I have never been comforted or have stopped worrying by just having someone tell me that. It's like, oh, don't worry. Oh, is it that easy? Oh, okay. It's never worked for me. And that's why Paul doesn't just leave it there. He's not just saying, don't worry, stop. He's telling you what to do. What do you do in place of your anxiety? He tells us, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The words there, prayer, supplication, and requests, are all three different ways of saying prayer. So are all synonyms. So what are we doing instead of, anxi- instead of suffering with anxiety? We're praying, we're praying, we're praying. Emphasizes this over and over and over again. That we are asking his help. That we are dependent on him. And by praying, I don't mean worrying out loud. Lord, so-and-so is sick. Lord, so-and-so is gone. Lord, this is happening, that is happening, this is happening, that is happening. It doesn't stop there. It's done with thanksgiving. Doesn't that change the whole timbre of your prayer? When we're starting out and saying, Lord, you have provided me everything that I have. You've brought me through this trial, that trial, this health need, that emotional problem, this death, this birth, this house, this tax season, this hardship with my children. You've brought me to this point. I have all of these things and you have provided for me. Every single thing that I have. And now I have this need that I need you to help me with. Oh, doesn't that change it? 
That is prayer. It's not worrying. It's thanks. I remember I heard one particularly challenging statement about prayer. It says, if you only had today what you thanked God for yesterday, how much would you have? It's a good test of our gratitude. As one commentator put it, thankfulness to God is the essence of the Christian life. It's an acknowledgement that we are not independent people. That we need God for every single thing in our lives. So as you say here, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, and your minds in Christ Jesus. Those are connected. Not being anxious and instead taking everything to God in prayer, as we sung earlier. And that will bring us peace. What is peace? Paul is importing the Old Testament meaning of peace. You probably have heard that Hebrew word. I mentioned it earlier, shalom. This is meant meant to capture a concept of wholeness. Everything is put together as it should be. You know those moments when you've had all the family together and everyone's getting along and it's around the table and things just are as they should be. That's peace. And that's what God promises. Peace of God. Now notice, as one commentator pointed out, this peace of God is not dependent on him answering your prayers positively. God does not have to give you what you want in order for you to have this peace. That's the point is that this peace and this joy is above your circumstances. And it doesn't matter how those prayers are answered. It's because you have Christ. That's why I love that last line of um, the deep, deep love of Jesus, that the heaven of heavens is to be in thy presence. Christ is the source of peace and rejoicing. And that by bringing your request to him, whether those are answered the way you think they should be or not, by refusing anxiety and by choosing to bring all of these things to prayer, you will have peace. That's why it passes all understanding. That's why it doesn't make sense to an outside watching world. But the person that you were praying for died. I have Christ. You lost the house that you were praying for. I have Christ. My family is broken. I have Christ. That's a peace that passes all understanding. And a world that looks outside and says, how? How do you do that? This is a huge punch against the prosperity gospel where God's only here to give you money 
God's only here to give you satisfaction. What a small view. God's only here to be your Amazon delivery boy. What a horrible reduction that is. Here this says it doesn't matter what happens in your life. Peace and joy can be yours. But it comes from refusing anxiety and coming to prayer. There is... And as we look at these things, that this peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The emotional center of who you are, your heart, and the thoughts that are in your head. Christ will guard both of those things when we follow what he has given to us here. Remembering the promise that Christ will be near gives us this ability to push off our anxieties. We can be, as one commentator said, free from the addiction of self-reliance. We can push that aside, this practical atheism of anxiety, and instead leave all our requests to him. And Christ himself will guard your heart and your mind. Then... Paul tells us here in verses 8 and 9, gives us several different words as to things that we should think about. What is it that we should be filling our minds with? We're really good at filling our minds with anxious thoughts. The world's really good at that. We have whole multiple cable news channels dedicated to that. Doom scroll through our Twitter feeds and can find all sorts of things to fill our heads with. But what does God want us to fill our heads with? Take a look. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, let's start there. True. How much pain could we avoid if we just stuck to thinking about what was true? What was actual? One commentator put it as like, anxiety is all about things that don't exist yet. Truth is about what is here. And truth can be subtle. Lies can be very, very easy to work their way in. This is actually something that I have said, where things have been going well in my life, and I'll say something like, oh, I've had it good for a while. Must be time for some trouble to come into my life. God's getting ready to zap me. And we say that jokingly, but we kind of mean it. That's not true thinking. God is not playing happiness whack-a-mole. He's waiting for someone happy to come up and boom! That's not the God that we serve. When God brings trouble into our life, it's to shape us to be more like Christ. When it says a trial must be coming, it's to make me more like him. To shape me into someone who trusts in God more. Do you see what a huge difference that reframing takes? Dwelling on what's true? Not like, oh, well, I've had things good, so God's just here to strike me with something. No. God doesn't strike you for no reason. He brings trials to shape you, to change you, 
to grow you. He loves you. The things that he purposes for you are for your good. Nothing in your life is out just to get you. Even when you've done something wrong, you're experiencing the consequences of that wrong thing. This is God helping you, shaping you, moving you away from that sin and toward himself. Do you see how many anxious thoughts can be binned just by that? Focusing on what's true, the gospel. This was something I was thinking about this morning as I was getting ready to come here today. Had a million things going through my head. And I thought, what is true? It's like I was tired this morning. Granger got up a few times last night. It's like, am I gonna have the energy to do the things I need to do today? My first thought, God is sovereign. And God is faithful. He always has been, and he always will be. He will provide the energy that I need to do the things I need to do today. Millions of thoughts melt away in that moment, focusing on what is true. Now, Paul lists others, whatever is honorable, things that have nobility, gravity, seriousness. Too often, we just fill our minds with frivolity. Our whole culture is really based on that. Instead of all the news channels that are there to fill us with anxiety, we have all the other channels that are filled with frivolity. This doesn't mean that there's not a place for a little bit of silliness here and there. Everyone needs a little bit of whimsy in their life, but far too much of a diet do we place on just silliness. And when trials come, we can't lean back on the 300 episodes of whatever it is that we watched on Netflix. We spend our time with what is honorable and noble. This gives us the foundation to deal with things when they come. And instead of being distracted, we can deal with them. We can focus on them, have solutions to them, even if we can't control them. It's giving them to God from a diet of things that are honorable. And then he continues, whatever is just, that is what is righteous. And whatever is pure, is clean. How often do we mindlessly watch that what is sinful and then expect that has no effect on our lives? We can consume hours of media that even if it's not portraying things that are, that are blatantly sinful, but have a worldview attached to them and just be passively unaware and taking it in. This has an effect on our thought. We have a mental diet of things that we take in just like we take in a physical diet. And they have effects. When you cram down Krispy Kreme donuts for months, it's going to have an effect on your body. Same thing when we cram junk into our mind day in, day out, months and after months. It has an effect. That's why Paul tells us to dwell on those things that are just and pure And then whatever is lovely, things that are beautiful, the world that God has created is a very beautiful place. 
And we spend very little time looking at it. God made it this way so that we would wonder. Why is it that God would create hundreds of billions of galaxies that up until just a few years ago we weren't even able to see? It's for us to wonder at them. To look at the loveliness of the gospel. We don't think about it. So often we're too distracted by the ugly. He continues, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The path to rejoicing, to joy, a quiet confidence and hope that the Lord will bring good things out of affliction begins in the mind. Are you unable to rejoice? What are you thinking about? Thinking about things that are untrue? Thinking about things that are unjust? It's about things that are unserious? Thinking about things that are impure? Well, it's no wonder. God tells us to focus on these things. But here's the next part. Verse 9. Yes, it begins in the mind, but it does not end there. It says in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what? Practice. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's not just, Christianity is not a religion for brains on a stick, as John Piper once put it. This is a life that changes our life. That it's not just thinking about things that are pure, but doing things that are pure. Living in light of truth. Living in light of righteousness and justice. And of course, that's only possible if we put our faith in Christ. If we are completely dependent on the gospel. So otherwise, our hearts are just full of sin and wickedness. Out of the heart comes all of these evil things. We need someone to change that. That's why Christ came and he died. So that he could purchase rejoicing for us. And oftentimes we leave this gift on the table. We say, well, Jesus saved my soul. That's good enough. It is good enough. Far more than we deserve. But Jesus is far more gracious and generous to us than we can imagine. He offers you joy and confidence in this life of suffering, not dependent on your circumstances, but on God, who works all things for your good. What's the takeaway from all of this? Well, God has commanded us to be joyfully confident in him. And the only way to do that is to rely on him in prayer, believe the promises that he has made to us, and practice the precepts that he has laid out for our lives. Then, and only then, will we be able to rejoice always. This does not mean that it is a sin to be sad or cry. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And wept many times. That's not what this is saying. But this is a joy and confidence through tears.
as confident in God. Heard a story of a mother who lost her toddler to lymphoma. It was a disease that they had been expecting, been watching and been waiting. The child was dying and the pastor was at the bedside when the child passed from this life to the other. And the mother, as soon as the child had passed, looked at the pastor and said, can we sing the doxology? That is rejoicing always. Now let me tell you, that mother didn't get there in five minutes. This is from a lifetime of dwelling on these promises and practicing these precepts. It's why we think about these things now. The theology informs how you're going to be able to deal with your future. Thinking about these things now, practicing these things now, will prepare you for when suffering comes. Because it's not done. We've been through a lot this year. Unfortunately, there's more coming. But God is still good. And we can still rejoice in him because he hasn't changed, even though our circumstances do. The path to peace is still the same. And it comes from looking away from ourselves and what we can do. Because we can't do anything anyway. And it's focusing on him who can do everything and who has done everything for us. That is peace. And that can be available to you. It's been a hard year, Knollwood. I'm not pretending that it isn't. Not not minimizing the hardships that have gone through, that we have gone through as a family. But this is the solid foundation for our joy so that we can gather around the tree this year and rejoice in a Savior who's come who has brought us peace on earth, who has brought us wholeness between God and man and something that you can experience in your own mind. Now, it's a fight. Everything in our world is geared to take you away from this. They don't want you to think about truth. They want you to think about their opinion, not about the word, but about current trends. They don't want you to think about what's serious. They want you to distract yourself. They don't want you to be stuck in what they would call a puritanical approach to life. Everything in our world wants to draw you away from this. And then we wonder why the world is full of anxiety and lack of peace. This is the only place where we find it. It's gonna be a fight, because not just the world, It's us. We're resistant to this too. We want the truth as we define it. We want help as we can provide it. But this is the beautiful hope that says you can cast those things to the side. You don't have to depend on yourself. You don't have to depend on your circumstances. And instead, bring everything to God in prayer. And then sit back. Think about those things that are true, just, honorable, lovely, pure, and of good report. And watch God work in peace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you 
for bringing us peace. You have provided for the only way that we can have peace is to know that our souls are taken care of. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross that makes all of this possible. And I pray for those that are going through such hardships that we all would remember this passage and know that joy is possible. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.